Hello and welcome to the Space Between podcast. I am William and I'm Katie and in this podcast we talk about the complexities of life, faith in the 21st century and everything in between. Often that space between is where a lot of us find ourselves. We hope to provide a place where people can be honest and we can engage with one another with compassion wherever we may end up on our journey. Before listening to this episode, I have to make you aware that there are many triggering elements present. We discuss sexual abuse, we discuss religious abuse, multiple other forms of abuse, and it's something that if you don't feel comfortable with, then I would advise you just skip this episode as it goes all the way through. First of all, in our discussion with Maggie May of Trauma Stronger today, and also afterwards in the statement that we make about Ravi Zacharias. So if you're okay with listening to these difficult topics, then please continue listening and we hope you get something out of today's episode. So today on the Space Between podcast, we have Maggie May. So nice to have you on today, Maggie. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So just to, to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own faith journey, some of what you do now, and as well as that, we can just go straight into your story, if you don't mind. Yeah, definitely. So um, like you said, my name's Maggie. I go by Maggie May. Um and uh, I'm 24. I'm in graduate school for counseling psychology, and um, I have an undergraduate degree in biblical theology and Christian ministry. So oh, that's such a complex question. Um, so I'm going to try to answer it in the most simple way that I can. Um, so I kind of got to start like an early childhood. So in my early, early childhood, I did not grow up in the church or Christian community whatsoever. I'm actually the youngest of five kids. Uh, I'm five minutes younger than my twin sister. So I've always been like the youngest, even though we both are the youngest. Um, So yeah, we did not grow up in a Christian home at all. In fact, um, I would say it was quite the opposite of a Christian home and Christian environment. Um, I did like know... you know, about a thing called Jesus and the Bible. And I had like a distant grandma who had always sent cards. And at the very end of every card, she would say, remember, Jesus loves you. And it was always kind of this joke with my siblings. I just remember my older siblings kind of laughing about it because this woman, you know, wasn't really in our lives, at least for my part of my childhood, because my older siblings are at different ages. And um, so we didn't really know who Jesus was, but she would always be like, remember Jesus loves you. And we kind of had this horrible home life. Um, so growing up, and this is, I want to share this part of my early childhood because it, it's important to what I'm going to be speaking about a little later in the podcast. Um, I grew up in a very dysfunctional home where a lot of abuse uh, was present. My biological parents were abusive to each other uh, and to us kids. Um, there was a lot of emotional abuse, physical abuse, um, And my biological mother really struggled with addiction and serious mental illness, untreated serious mental illness. And um, my dad, my biological father, you know, had his own struggles. And so honestly, it was just not a safe environment for kids to grow up in whatsoever. 
And each one of my siblings and I have a completely unique perspective and story of our childhood because we're also at such different ages besides my twin and I. So we all really experienced the state of my biological parents' uh, mental states and addictions and behavior at different paces. Um, so us being the youngest, um, there was kind of this pattern. My parents separated when I was around five years old. They were never like formally married, but they, they split. So my biological father was like kind of in and out of the picture. So it was mostly um, with my, my biological mother for most of my childhood. And again, like I said, she was um, struggled with severe addiction and was quite abusive uh, emotionally and physically. But yeah, so I lived with my biological mother until I was um, 11 years old. And she kind of had this pattern where she would kick out her children once they got to a certain stage. And it was nothing because of what the children was doing. It was all because of her own mental state and her addiction. So a few days before I turned 12 years old, um, it was like four days before my birthday, um, early in the morning, she was very, very drunk. And at this point in our life, she was always drunk, always, always drunk, always on drugs. Uh, and it was early in the morning. I just remember I had like these Tweety Bird PJs on and she kicked my twin sister out. And uh, I was in our back bedroom. We lived in this small apartment. And I just remember, like, I, I wasn't even, um, I don't know if I was praying. I wasn't um, a Christian or anything at the time, but I was just saying to myself, please forget I'm here. Please forget I'm here. Please forget I'm here. And I really felt terrified in that moment that she was either going to beat me. And I, I also felt like I might die today. Uh, she didn't forget I was there. She called me out and she was laying on her couch and she was um, uh, intoxicated and she ended up kicking me out that day. Um, and then a couple days later, she called, we actually like went to a neighbor's house and we called our biological dad who we hadn't lived with consecutively since we were five. And we're like, Hey, mom kicked us out. Can you come get us? So long story short, we ended up transitioning into my biological father's home. And that was at in the summer before we started middle school. So that was, you know, a few days later, I turned 12 years old and I went into seventh grade transitioning into middle school. And, um, during that year is when actually, so I, we stayed in the same town. we still lived in the same town. Although like growing up, I moved a lot. Like in one school year, we went to seven different towns. So um, this was like the most consecutive town we'd ever lived in. So we stayed in the same town and we went to middle school. My twin and I were both in seventh grade and we both were invited by these two friends to go to youth group. And growing up, when I lived with my biological mother, we weren't allowed to do church things. She was very, uh, had pretty um, severe views on like the church ages over and um, just kind of always ranting about stuff that didn't really make sense to me as a child. But um, she was like always back and forth about stuff. So like she would be like, oh, sure, you can go to Awana's. We have Awana's here, which is like um, youth group for little, little kids if you're not in middle school yet or in high school. So if we would be invited to Awana's, we would go and just like a handful of times. And by the time we got home, she was so livid and we were her worst enemy because we had gone and it was like a betrayal to her. So it was just very dysfunctional. So finally it was like, okay, we live with our biological father um, and our two friends invited us to youth group and we're golden, we can go, like it's no big deal. And for me, it was never like a God thing at all. It was just like, I wanna go hang out with kids. Cause like when you live in like such a dysfunctional home, 
usually like for us it was isolation we weren't allowed to go over to people's houses people weren't allowed to come over to ours you didn't have sleepovers things like that so it was like a new thing to be able to like go and actually do social things in a new way in an extended way so then we started going to youth group and I remember the first night we went ever went to youth group our friend's mom picked us up and we went with her and we lived in a very small town um I walked into the youth group and it wasn't at a church. It was at this building that we called delivery. And um, the youth pastor was standing there and my friend introduced us and he gave me the biggest hug. And he said, I'm so glad you're here. And that has never left my mind. That, that always stuck out to me. Like, wow, like these people are so nice. So very quickly, very, very quickly, I youth group became my safe haven. Um, I did not believe what was being taught there at all. Um, I was, I, you know, I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of confusion about how there possibly could be a God when so much pain had been in my life. Um, and who knows what other, you know, hormonal things were going on in my brain as a middle schooler. And just, you know, a lot of middle schoolers don't think very deeply about spiritual things, you know? So I was like, God, ah, I was like, I just want to have some fun with my friends. I'll sing the worship songs. I like singing and dancing. You know, it was just like a fun time. We played games. It was just such a contrast to what I grew up with. So it's just, and it was all my kind of like a lot of my friends who we had, like who lived in the apartment complexes and stuff like that all went to this youth group. And I always joked that our youth group was made from scratch. And I later found out that it was actually a church that had broken off of another church in town. But like as a middle schooler, you don't even think about that. But so that's why it wasn't actually in a church at all. The youth pastor at the end of the night, you know, I didn't believe anything he talked about. But then the night when he said, I love you guys. See you next week. I believed him. And I believed him because he would invite us over to his office after school. And we'd walk home. We would walk to the youth group from our middle school and go to his office and ask him just probably be the most annoying little kids and ask so many questions. And he would just answer them all so patiently. And the biggest thing for me, the biggest thing for me in that seventh grade and eighth grade for those two years, my youth pastor quickly became a safe adult for me. I had never ever in my life growing up in an abusive home, we all, I always knew never to tell anybody, not to tell a soul what happened behind our, our front door. Um, we just, we were trained not to tell anybody about the abuse going on. And so my youth pastor had invited us, my twin and I out to have donuts at this local bakery. And that was kind of his thing. He would invite kids out to bakery, talk to them, get to know them. It was like a normal thing in town that he would do. So he invited us out to donuts and he said, you know, anything you tell me is completely confidential. And so for the very first time in my entire life, someone asked me, tell me, ask me about my life. And I felt like I could tell them. And so for the first time I shared, like, this is, this is my life story. Like this is, and it wasn't at that time. I wasn't like as a 13, 14 year old, I wasn't like, or as a 12 year old, I wasn't like, oh, this is my life story. I was like, oh, well, you know, this is what's going on with my biological mom. This is why I'm living with my biological dad. And that led into kind of sharing a, a lot about the abuse that I went through. Um, and for the first time in my life, I had asked, someone had asked me, how does that make you feel? How are you doing? What do you think about that? And I'd never had anybody care to ask me how I felt about everything, how I felt about my life, how I felt about what was going on at home. And so quickly in the span of those two years, 
um, in middle school, my youth pastor became like a father figure to me and um, a really safe person. And, and youth group was my safe haven. I transitioned into high school. Two months into high school, um, we actually are taken away from my father, my biological father. And um, we move into with a half sister and that was very um, temperamental and didn't last very long, like two months. Cause she actually also was not like that safe of a person, not safe home, wasn't taking care of the kids she had. We actually didn't even know she existed until later on in our life. Um, so she's not someone I grew up with at all. So anyways, we transitioned back into my biological father's home and um, coincidentally that was a Wednesday and we went to youth group and my biological father wasn't home yet, but we were, we were brought back to his house. And we told our youth pastor that we were scared to go home. And he said, call me if anything were to happen, you know? So that night something did happen, police were called. And um, when the police officers wanted to get us out of that situation, they asked, is there anybody you can call? And the first person I said was, yes, my youth pastor. And we called and he didn't pick up. And so we ended up calling a best, my best friend and her mom came and picked us up. But at that point in my life, he was a very important person. Um, and so then when we transitioned into foster care, um, after that, we had were transitioned into foster care. And I moved in with this uh, foster mom who grew up Jewish and who practiced Buddhism. So it was very interesting for me um, to transition into that environment. And she was a single woman. And she asked us, you know, what do you believe? And at the time I said, well, I'm a Christian. And, uh, and she was like, okay. So she started asking me like a series of questions and I didn't know how to answer a single question. And I said, well, I don't believe in the Bible. And, and I wasn't really sure about God, but I was a Christian. Like, that's the one thing I had. I was like, I go to youth group. I'm a Christian. Um, so she asked me a series of questions and really broke it down. And looking back, it was very insensitive of her to do that as a foster child coming in, having nothing, having just lost everything from your life. And to say, this is the one thing I have is I'm a Christian. And then her dismantle that in seconds. And then I was like, wow, actually, maybe I'm not a Christian. I'm not sure what I am. I don't know what I believe. And that was a really dark period. And that was my first year of ninth grade. Um, and during that time in foster care here, like where I was at, people had to get special permission to be able to see um, you if you were in foster care. So like our youth pastor was, um, got special permission to be able to come and see us. And during that, we lived with our first foster mom for nine months. And during that time, I did not believe in God. I made that very clear to him. But he still came, he still took us out. He would take us out to lunch um, and he would take us out um, to breakfast and he would just talk to us and call us and make sure we were doing okay and communicate to us that he wished he could adopt us and that he loves us and that he's always there for us. And he loves us as if he's our, you know, our, our dad and um, all that. So it was like, he was like my one lifeline that I had. Um, and so then nine months go by and we actually end up transitioning into our second foster home. And um, this would end up to be our adoptive home eventually. And, but my adopted parents actually fostered my old, one of my older sister or my older sister um, when she was in high school. So we had kind of known about them and everything. And we didn't have like a super close relationship with them, but we knew them. So we transitioned into their home. Um, and that's when he said, hey, I would really like you guys to go on this youth trip. It's called Challenge. It's a youth convention. It's in New Orleans. And um, 
so I was like, cool, I'm going to be able to see all my friends from back home. And I did not, I wasn't going for God at all. I wasn't going for anything. And he's like, but I have one stipulation is that you need to start going to youth group somewhere in your town because we live the town away now. So we lived like 15, 20 minutes away from our, where we were living, where our youth group was. So it wasn't far enough away where we couldn't ever see people, but because we were in foster care, we never really saw anybody because there's like strict rules about who you can and cannot see and things like that. But anyway, so we go to this youth convention and um, I bought, we had to buy a Bible for it and we just bought one. And I remember being like, I'll just share this with my twin sister. I'm never going to read it anyways. It doesn't matter. So we go to this youth convention and, you know, it's like very typical. It's like very like charismatic. It's very just like they do everything to get kids like riled up and like have so much fun. And Francis Chan was the speaker, which he's a captivating speaker, brilliant speaker. He knows how to captivate an audience. Christian Stanfield was the band. I had never been to something like this before. And I went with the intent of not caring about God and just wanting to see my friends from back home. And all that flipped, it switched very quickly for me. And it was, I don't know what it was that Francis Chan said, but whatever he said, uh, I started listening. And, and I was like, wait, he has something to say. And like, during worship, it was just such a different experience for me. And so at that convention, um, for the very first time in my entire life, I felt like I knew, I, I knew for sure that God was real. And that was one thing earlier in, in my, in my time in youth group that in middle school, I would be so envious of the girls who were so sure that God was real. I'm like, how can you be so sure of anything? Like I wasn't sure of anything in my life. And I was like, I'm so envious that you're so sure that God is real. Like I want to know that God is real, but I just don't know. And at that trip for the first time, I really felt like I had felt God's presence. And I was like, whoa, God is real. And, and I remember the moment that it happened and during that time, you know, my youth pastor, he would be texting me and being like, how's your day going? How's your night going? Me not thinking anything of it. My friends would tease me like, oh, you're, you're the youth pastor's favorite, um, things like that, you know, and just thinking, I'm like, yeah, because, you know, he, he loves me like I'm his daughter, you know, we have a closer relationship because of that, you know, like he's like a dad to me. And at the end of this trip, um, I was actually sitting by him, my twin sister, and it was me and the you know, there's this typical thing that says like, um, at the end of youth trips, like you're, you have this like fire burning in you, but then when you go home, it kind of slowly dies out and you start doing like the same old things over and over again, whatever. So they kind of gave that analogy and they're like, so that your fire doesn't burn out. We want you to do this 50 day challenge. And the convention was called challenge. And so go home and read the Bible for 50 days with two other partners one partner, write down their names now, one partner who's here at the convention and one friend that you're going to invite to do this with once you get home, who's not here at this convention. And I remember writing down my twin's name and then writing down another friend's name. And my youth pastor leaned over, it's so vivid, I can remember it. And he, and he said, I wanna do this with you too. So I crossed out my name and I put his name down and so did my sister. So then we leave, we leave this trip and, when I get home, it ends up being my 16th birthday. And I decide like, and that's all my 16th birthdays when we started the 50 day challenge. And this was 50 days of reading the Bible for the very first time in my, in my life of studying it and analyzing it and starting this spirit, really deep spiritual journey. Um, and we would message back and forth, like send long messages every day and do this Bible study. And quickly my twin sister is like, mm, 
she didn't have the same experience that I did at the at the um, convention. So she's like, I'm dipping out. This is weird. I don't want to talk about my feelings, which is totally cool. Like it just wasn't where she was at, where she was at, and she didn't want to do it. Um, and so I continued it with him by myself, which again, we'll talk about this a little later, but it was a huge boundary crossing by my youth pastor. He should have never initiated a private Bible study with two female students and then continue to do it alone with me. Um, of course, me not knowing that this was an issue, I didn't know that other youth pastors weren't texting their students, private messaging them, spending time with them alone, consecutively alone. Like I didn't know this wasn't normal because this was normal for me. Um, so we do this 50 day Bible study and, and I'm, I, I, for know for sure, like God is real. I'm a follower of Jesus. And that was in July In August, he baptized me. Um, and slowly by slowly, he, you know, started to share with me in the, in these Bible studies about his personal life, about his marriage. He's 27 years older than me. And he's been a youth pastor for longer than I'd been alive. Um, and he was sharing things about my, his life with me and I would pray for him. And, and again, I, I didn't know this wasn't normal. <laughs> I thought that this is what people do in the Christian community. They overshare and they pray for each other. And this was okay. And that he loved me like he was, like he was my dad. So, um, you know, going into that. So then I, I'm baptized and then I'm at school and my mission is no longer. So I'm at a new high school, you know, I've been there for now two years and I'm like, my mission is no longer to meet friends. I was always kind of part of the misfits anyways. I was like, my mission is to tell everybody about Jesus. And I remember self being so frustrated. Like, why do I need to learn geometry? All I want to do is drop out of school and like people need to hear about Jesus. Like, what are we doing? Like, there's no point to get a high school diploma. I was very just like excited about my new faith and, and I would bring my Bible with me everywhere. I was that really annoying Christian girl in high school. I joke with my fiance today that like, he always says, you wouldn't like me in high school. I was like, trust me, you would have not liked me in high school. Um, I would have been trying to share the gospel with you every single second of the day. So um, for me, this time of my life was, I just remember for the first time, I felt like everything in my life made sense. That all the pain I had been through was for a purpose and that God had me and I was okay. And that everyone else needed to hear about this hope. Everyone else needed to hear about Jesus. And so it was the happiest time of my life. I just remember feeling like I had never felt so free. And then, so I was baptized in August and in September, October, like October ish time. Um, I don't know exactly that month, but it was in the fall. Um, my youth pastor, I was in cross country and he had sent me a message and he said something along the lines of like, you know, I see the world in, um, color now. And I, you know, you've changed my life, all this stuff. Like, I love you so much. And this first message, it didn't click with me. I didn't quite get it. Um, what he was trying to say. Um, so I didn't think anything really of it. I'm like, okay, like uh, this, I know this has been like a crazy spiritual journey for me too. You know, I didn't think anything of it. And at the time, you know, I was telling him, like, these are the boys I had crushes on at school and stuff like that. And, uh, and then so then he sent me another message. And this one, it was very clear. And he said, I'm in love with you. And he said all this stuff and apologized and all these things, you know, and he's like, never show anybody this message. And then the next day I was walking home from school. We lived really close to the school. And um, 
he at that time had actually known my schedule and he would call and we were also doing a book study. So not only were we reading the Bible with each other every day, we were doing a book study and we would meet. He asked me to meet with him once a week on Wednesdays before youth group in person at a coffee shop or a tea house to talk about this study. And so, and then he would message me and send me smiley faces throughout the day. And he would just say, you know, it's just, I'm just letting you know, I'm thinking of you throughout the day. He asked to know my school schedule so that he could call me during my, um, I'd open campus. So he would call me during my lunch hours and study halls. And um, so really any free minute he was trying to contact me and he would go to my cross country meets and be like, don't tell the other kids. Cause I don't want them to, you know, get jealous or anything like that. And so he would slow, he was like slowly asking me to keep secrets. Um, he had, um, given me a bracelet for my baptism and kind of gave it to my sister to give it to me and not to show her foster parents. It's like slowly, little by little, he was asking me to keep like little teeny secrets that, you know, I didn't ever catch on to, but it all led up to this, this moment where he told me he was in love with me. And the next day I was walking home from school and we're on the phone and we're talking and uh, I'm like, that's funny. That looks like your truck that's coming up my road. And he's like, that's because it is. And so he pulled up and he's crying and he was apologizing kind of now that I've heard other women and guys stories about uh, sexual exploitation by their pastors. This is a very common thing. They will cross a boundary. Then they'll cry and say, I need forgiveness. You know, I'm so sorry. I know this is wrong. We can continue to move forward. You know, just please never tell anybody. You can't tell anybody this will ruin my life. This will impact how people see God. So I was like very quickly, um, I was like, it's okay. I won't tell anybody. Cause I, at that time, I still did not understand the extent of what he was telling me. Um, and so very quickly, I went from the happiest time in my life to the darkest and hardest part of my, of my life. Um, so slowly by slowly after he had confessed his love for me um, and I promised I would never tell anybody, I was very loyal to him. And that's one thing I want to mention that in middle school, he had counseled me through a lot of the abuse I went through as a young child. He knew the dynamic of my relationship with my biological mother and my biological father. He knew that I had been a parentified child. He knew that I had to take care of and keep secrets that my, my parents told me. Like I was never really allowed to be a child growing up. I always had known things that a child should never know. So um, yeah, so he, you know, I, I kept a secret and this was my junior year of junior year of um, high school, it went on to my senior year and slowly and slowly the abuse, you know, uh, intensified and um, became, you know, um, and looking back, you know, he was already like touching me, like long hugs, touching me on my cheek, giving me a kiss on the cheek, touching my thigh, things like that. And so, and that's all the process of grooming. And um, so, yeah, so eventually he started sexually abusing me and he would, you know, send, um, at any minute, he would be texting me and um, sending me messages, staying up really late, messaging back and forth. And I was convinced that he told me that I was his soulmate, that because he was born in 69 and I was born in 96, because of the effect of sins of sin, we would have been born at the, in the same time, period, same time period and we would have been able to be together. And me, everything he said, everything he touched was gold. I believed everything he said. And if he, this man who's a pastor believes we are soulmates and I was a hopeless romantic teenager, no, even before I was a Christian, my heart was set on 
having one husband, like one man in my life forever. I don't know what it was in my life, but that it wasn't, and it just so happened that the Christian faith worked really well with that. So I just personally had always felt like I only want to be with one person and one person for always. And that's just how I felt inside. And I, I always wanted to get out of the situation that I was in. Um, I never felt like I fit in, but again, because of all that past abuse and kind of the generations of, of dysfunction in my family, I, I believed him when he talks about like generational sin. And I thought that this was like my curse as a woman that I desired so badly to be this pure girl, but this was my curse that I was a dirty sinner and that this is what my destiny was. And yeah, so that was a really, to be frank, a really, really shitty time. I, it was really hard. Um, and I thought, so that abuse continued throughout junior high, uh, or sorry, junior and senior year of high school. And I thought that when I broke, was able to go to college, like this would be my breakaway. This would be my fresh, my fresh start. And this is when I would be able to, to break away from him. Cause I would, I would try to break away from him and it just wasn't possible. Um, and so, yeah, so then I went to college and within the first week, I like didn't, I didn't speak to him or anything like that. And um, he just flipped out and he was like, was this your plan all along to go to college and forget about me and all the things I have done for you, all the things, you know, just, I felt so indebted to him and I felt so bad in that moment. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible person. And it was always a lot of self-deprecation. Like I truly thought what was going on was my fault. And it was a lot of just like, I'm indebted to him, whatever, you know, and so um, after I thought college would be a breakaway, it wasn't, the, the abuse got more controlling, more, um, more intense than it ever had been. So then, you know, moving forward my freshman year, you know, it, it, it just controlled my entire first freshman year of, of college. And then my sophomore year as well. And it had finally gotten to a point where I was physically disappearing. I was so thin. Uh, from the moment he first started abusing me from the moment he told me he was in love with me, I, I started losing weight and I'm all, I'm, I'm almost six feet tall and already a thin person. So I was, my physical appearance was horrible. Um, you know, I, I was just covered in rashes. My face was just full of rashes. I was, had so much social anxiety. I, I felt so trapped and alone. And I went to spring break to visit my sisters. Um, my once I live in a different state than both my sisters and my older sister flew in and I flew in to see my twin sister across the country. And it took getting away from the situation, being pulled out physically from the situation. And my older sister just like, after a series of events, she's like, what's wrong? Like, who are you? What's going on? And I couldn't BS them. And they knew something bad was going on. So um, at that time I was 19 years old. And I had tried to take care of the situation by myself. I tried and tried to get out of his grips um, since I had left for college, since he had first told me, like I tried and tried. And so I just told them. And when I told them, I wasn't saying, I didn't say I've been, I've been being abused by my youth pastor. I said, um, I had sex with my youth pastor because at the time I thought that this was I didn't realize that it was abuse. I thought that this was all like my fault um, and that I was this horrible sinner um, and that I was needed to confess my sin. Um, so then right away they responded and they're like, this is not your fault. And you know, we love you. And they were just so receptive. And for, for one second, I was like, wow, 
and I felt like this, this thing that I had been carrying, I wasn't carrying alone anymore. And I felt like a, like for like, just, just, it last didn't last very long, but I felt like a, a moment of just, of like relief. Um, and that I didn't have to, I didn't have to run anymore. And I asked them, and I, and if my sisters, people who know me, I, I'm not a big fan of fast food at all. And in that moment, I was like, this might seem weird, but can we go get some McDonald's? Cause I was just so hungry. It was like, I needed to get that out to be able to have an appetite. And so it was just this immense release of like having the secret for so many years. Um, it just wreaks havoc on your body. So anyway, so yes. Yeah, so then um, my sisters let my parents know and that became the process of coming forward. Um, there was a police report made and um, yeah. So then I've, uh, officially came forward about the abuse going on. I left school. Um, I went back from spring break. I moved out of the dorms right away. I talked to my dean. And I was like, I got to go. Like, this is what's going on, on in my life. I was able to finish school from home, actually, which was so great. My university let me do that. Um, so, yeah. So, to my surprise, all the reasons I believed, known, like, all these reasons I believed, like, if I told somebody what would happen, didn't happen and everyone came around me and supported me and loved me and said, this is not your fault. And I went home and um, started, you know, my healing journey from there. So that was five years ago when I came forward and, um, and I hope, sorry, I didn't take, hopefully I didn't take too long explaining that, but I just feel like that whole process, like that has been my faith journey and there's no really sharing about my faith journey without including all of that. Um, Cause it doesn't really represent without sharing all that. It, I feel like there's so many pieces that are, are important that would be missing. So, yeah. Yeah. Especially when like your faith kind of originates with this one person, like it's almost brought about by him. So I just, I just want to acknowledge, thank you so much for being open about all of those experiences, especially experiences which are, are difficult and, and traumatic. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, in terms of when you were at school um, and at, in college, you studied like theology, uh, the ministry in theology. So as you were learning about that, like did you begin to, did that help you begin to see the problems with what your youth pastor had been telling you? Um, and did you begin to understand that what he was saying maybe wasn't lining up with uh, what scripture uh, or tradition actually says? Yeah. So that's a great question. When I went to undergrad, it's very interesting because I feel like there's these collisions of personalities of people who go to school to study ministry and every like 18, 19 year old kid who comes into undergraduate school to study ministry, like has a solid, like, this is what my youth pastor told me. And there was a lot of that, like, well, no, you're wrong. Cause this is what my youth pastor told me. So I was very loyal to what he had taught me. And also, um, he had such control over my schedule. Like there was no distancing. There was no time to think on my, by myself. Um, and I would try to distance myself. I even started dating a guy to say, I have a boyfriend now. I can't talk to you. And, and it, it, that, that in itself, he still found a way to weasel back in and, and control my life. So um, that, I think that was a huge part that was hard, but there were moments where like, I started volunteering at this youth group at this, this church that was um, local to where my college was. And um, they had such strict rules about um, boundaries and like hugging students and things like that. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Cause it was such a contrast 
like it was a free for all at my youth group. Like everyone was always touching each other and there was no boundaries. So I was like, whoa, like that was when I, but when I first noticed that I was like, dang, like these people are crazy because I still didn't see the connection. I still wasn't realizing, like I just mentally wasn't there yet. Um, and I don't know why, like, I think like looking back, it's like when you're still under that control and abuse, um, it's like, I, I couldn't fully think clearly. But the second I was able to tell someone, it was like the whole ground just fell out from underneath me. And I was able to see the last several years in a whole different way. Obviously, th um, through a progression of time, um, it didn't all make sense immediately at all. I was very confused uh, for a long time. But I don't know if that answers your question. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And was there like a, a turning point for you where you went from having like processed this sort of trauma and abuse to then going, right, I want to go back to school. I want to start a master's and begin to actually help other people who have went through similar experiences. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So um, I don't know why now that you just asked that question, I feel like I can better answer the last question. <laughs> there was times uh, when I was studying. So the first freshman and sophomore year of college, when I was studying the Bible and ministry, I felt like a fraud. I felt like it wasn't like, oh, my, my youth pastor's wrong. I was like, I'm a horrible person. I'm a sinner. I'm sexually dirty. You know, I'm the fraud. And, and that's how I kind of internalized everything when I was learning about different stuff in school. Um, so then, yeah, so when I left school, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I believed. I was like, I don't even know if I believe in God. I don't know what I wanted. I was very lost, very, very lost. I felt like I was on this emotional train that my youth pastor had put me on and was like, you're going to be a youth pastor. You're going to do ministry. Cause that's like, it's like, he was like making a carbon copy of himself. And that's kind of how I felt. And I was like, is any of this, what I actually wanted to do? Um, so I spent two years out of undergrad and when I came home, you know, I, I did intensive therapy. I would do, I did therapy three to four times a week for a while. Like I was in really rough shape. Um, there was a time period I didn't even leave my bedroom. Um, I'm so thankful for my adoptive parents because, um, when I was in the heat of PTSD symptoms and I had no idea what was going on with my body, I had no, I, I didn't understand what was going on. Um, they were so supportive and there would be days I just could not leave my bedroom. And my mom, my adopted mom would say, I think you should come out today. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not ready. I can't. So I was in a very dark place mentally. Um, but I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity to go home and to completely fall apart because I think that was necessary for me. So in my mind, I was like, you know, I can't stay at home forever. I'm an adult. I need, I need to be able to support myself, whatever, you know? So I want to finish school. So I decided that I would transfer to the state university where my, my twin sister was in the state she lived in and I would study English. And so, um, and again, during this time, the criminal, there was a criminal process going on to press charges against my youth pastor. So I'm working with detectives and lawyers. And so I couldn't move yet. And so I just did some online classes. I was an English major for like one semester at another university because I love writing. Um, but then during that time, like, going through therapy, working with the detectives. Um, I slowly, I was like, you know what, maybe I just want to take one class online for my old university and see how I feel about it. So I took a systematic theology class the next semester. 
So I transferred back to my other university and just online, I took a systematic theology class. And through that semester, I realized what I wanted to do. And I realized I want to go back to school and I want to finish my ministry degree. I don't want to be a minister. I don't want to be a pastor, but I think it's important for me to finish my ministry degree because I want to get a master's in, in, in psychology and I want to help the church be a safer place. I was like this because I had shortly after coming forward through just even just the legal system of finding out how many youth pastors are um, uh, have allegations against them, but are let off on technicalities because there's certain laws that just like they are allowed to get let off and, 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 um, in my opinion, they're snakes and they're, they're just good at what they do. They're good at um, flying under the radar. They're good at covering up the abuse. And so when I learned that I wasn't the only one this has happened to and the extent to how much this happens, I was just like, this can't happen. Like I like have to do something. And I just, that's just, and I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I was just like, I know I need to go finish school. And I knew that was going to be difficult. I didn't want to go back to ministry school. That in itself was a whole nother process for me, triggering and everything. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so currently you are partway through that master's. You're not yet a licensed counselor, but just for, so that we can kind of go on to the kind of how your experiences have led on to the work that you want to do and are doing currently online. Um, do you want to just give people a basic idea of what trauma is? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so like you said, I'm not a mental health practitioner. I'm not a professional at all. I'm literally just a student in a counseling psychology program. I'm in my next in February, I'll be starting my second semester. So I did a fall and a J term and now the spring will be my quote unquote, second full semester of classes. So I'm very young in the program still, but from the American Psychological Association, trauma, so you can look this up, APA, I'm not a professional, this is not my definition. Trauma is an emotional response to adverse or terrible events. So it could be a number of different events, um, but trauma is a response in the body. So um, a lot of people like, oh, I went through a lot of trauma. Well, the event isn't the trauma, your experience in the body is what the trauma is. So it's a physiological response to an adverse event. That's the simplest way to put it, I feel like. Yeah. And for, for those who maybe have experienced like a, a really bad experience within the, the church, is there a sort of aspect of religious trauma um, that can exist for people? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I didn't, I don't know when exactly this phrase started to be used, religious trauma. Um, I just recently have realized there's a huge community online that who resonate with religious trauma. And um, from my understanding, it is any type of trauma, a, a physiological response that a person has had that's specifically related to religion and a religious experience. So that doesn't, is not fully isolated just to Christianity. It can be any religion. Um, for me, it has been Christianity. Um, so yeah. Just on that aspect of, of abuse and trauma, most listeners will have heard of the Me Too movement, uh, but maybe not the Church Too movement. Could you explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it's so interesting because the Me Too movement went viral in, I 
think 2017. And that was like a year after I'd come forward about my youth pastor's abuse. So that really was um, a really important thing for me to have gone viral because I saw that I was, whoa, I'm not alone at all. But then in the same time, um, I think the church two movement also in like the fall of 2017 started. I don't know really all the details about it, but the church two movement specifically is about um, the very evasive and predominant sexual abuse that's going on in the church that has historically gone on in the church and continues to go on in the church and is continuously covered up by pastors, church staff, and, and, and abuse that's not being um, handled properly, like uh, being reported, um, being, um, um, you know, reported to the proper authorities. So I, that's the, essentially in the simplest way, that's what the church movement is, is calling out and trying to hold the churches and church leaders accountable to the abuse that has continuously gone on um, without repercussion at all and without accountability. That's the biggest yeah, thing. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely that need for accountability whenever you come out of a situation like that. So for, for those who have experienced religious trauma of some kind or, or sexual abuse within the church, um, and for your obviously from your own journey where you've began this kind of road of of recovery and healing and obviously life is never the same after an event like that there is always going to be something that affects you um but how can people begin that that journey to healing like what's been helpful for you on your own journey in that yeah um so again i want to reiterate and disclaim i'm not a mental health professional at all um and everything everyone's story is so different and experience is so different um but for me personally um you know the biggest thing that i've recognized in my journey like it's been five years and i'm ready to share i'm starting this is my very first time sharing like on such a public platform um on a podcast or anything um five years ago, I would not have been ready to do that. And so my healing journey has been a slow process and has each step has been different. Um, and I, and it, and it wasn't like this linear thing at all. So I think the biggest thing is just be patient and take one step at a time and don't compare your journey to anybody else's because what you need might be completely different to what someone else's need. So what someone else needs, but the biggest thing, I would say the biggest thing and any, any advice I would give to a peer who I, I come across or anything like that is I think it's so important to seek out mental health, um, a, a mental health practitioner or, or some other type of professional who is a licensed professional, who is licensed and is a professional in trauma or religious trauma or just mental health care in general. Because I think it's so important from going from an institution that was practicing outside of their scope, trying to act like the legal system, trying to act as mental health care to their congregants, um, to go to someone, if you are going to seek help, make sure it's a professional, because um, you don't want to be re-traumatized. You don't want, that's such a vulnerable part of someone's life. And you really want to put that in the hands of someone who is safe and who is a professional. Um, so that's would be, and right now there's a lot of like trauma coaches online who aren't licensed professionals. There's a lot of different people who are gurus that will try to help you. And I personally would say to stray away from that, I would say to seek out professionals, like reading people's stories online, stuff like that can be helpful, but don't, seek them out as if they're a professional who can help you walk through your trauma because you really want to have a professional help you do that 
Yes, it does. It does make such a difference. Um, after I, I left the church that I was once part of, one of the first things that I did, it was actually my work that kind of put me onto it and, and just said, you should go and, and see this, uh, was went straight to counselling and made such a difference. Um, and especially coming from an environment where uh, the people I had been with had just said about speaking with pastors and Christian counsellors and sort of quotation marks there of like, they're not always actually professionally trained. They're there and sometimes they can be emotionally helpful, but uh, don't know actually how to deal with with trauma of, of any kind. Like, because once, once I had left my church, like I began to experience things in my physical body of muscles tensing up and just getting completely knotted and um, things like that, which I hadn't really experienced before and needed the professional help. So just to reiterate that to anyone listening, the professional help really does help. Um, in terms of just things that you've done, like personally, in terms of personal, either spiritual practices or things, whether it's meditation or anything like that, practices that you've found useful and being able to come to this place that you're at now and being open uh, and, and talking about your journey? Yes, definitely. So um, I just want to say too, real quick, that I really appreciate you sharing that because um, one thing I have learned in my in my training so far is that counselors, even if you're not going to go see a specific Christian counselor. Counselors are trained to not to be able to help anybody from different belief systems. So they're not supposed to act on bias at all. So um, you can fully express your faith and the things that have gone on with your faith. And faith. And if it's a trained therapist, they should, and a licensed therapist and a professional therapist, they should be able to help you with that. Um, so I just wanted to add that in there. Um, uh, yeah. So things that have have specifically helped me like I said it's been so different throughout my entire journey but number one for me the biggest thing from the get-go was when I was feeling so physically weak and like you said like you experienced a lot of physical symptoms after you had left the church um, I experienced a lot of physical symptoms once I had come forward about the abuse and it was like I said like the ground had fallen out from under me and my body was no longer my own um, and I had no idea what was going on with my body. I had a lot of physical symptoms. And so I felt very physically weak and I felt very mentally weak um, and, and vulnerable. And so for me, a huge part of in the beginning was becoming physically strong in the sense of I started exercising and I don't know what that was like very meditative for me. And I started going out on walks. I would just, I would just walk all the time. If it was raining, I would walk like any, anything I would be walking and I'll go two, three times a day. And it was just so therapeutic to me. And now I know that there was actually some um, benefit to uh, walking and why that felt so natural to do. And it actually is beneficial for someone who has a dysregulated um, nervous system to be walking or to be doing some type of, um, uh, exercise that kind of helps calm your system. Um, so that is in the beginning is kind of what I was, my capacity was at. Um, and then beyond that, um, I would say like psychoeducation. Um, so I, I, the therapist I worked with was really great with, I'm definitely like a person who I want to know what's going on. So learning like the, the, educational part of, okay, I, I know I have post-traumatic stress disorder, um, um, but what does that mean? Like, so understanding what was going on with my body helped me. It didn't make the trauma go away. It didn't make it easier, but it helped me in the moments of when I was experiencing symptoms, 
understand what was going on. Um, so just that helped me. Um, again, the biggest thing for me was therapy. That was the biggest thing. And the one thing I want to say is that there are, and I didn't know this until I went to school and until I started my master's program. There are so many different types of ther therapists out there who have different styles and different approaches. And so knowing and it can be an exhausting process, but finding a therapist that has the right approach for you is so important. And I had, no, I was like, I wish the general public knew about this more. There's literally so many different styles of therapy that, um, so that, that was probably the biggest thing for me. And I, I know that's not very, maybe it's not, not very helpful, but um, I definitely wouldn't be where I'm at today if I wouldn't have gone to therapy. Um, and I'm still in therapy, but the especially extensive stuff that I was doing in the beginning um, was so um, important to my healing. Yeah. And uh, just in terms of like the work that you're wanting to go on to do, you said that like part of wanting to do your master's was so that you can help churches become a safe place for people to go to and to prevent these sort of abuses from happening again in the future. So how can churches implement trauma-informed training? How, what sort of things do you think should be put in place as standard in churches um, to prevent abuses like this from happening? Yeah, so um, number one, I think the biggest thing that churches, and I wanna specifically speak to um, prevention of sexual abuse, um, pastoral sexual exploitation, um, just because the whole um, the whole topic of mental health and what churches need to do and could do is so vast. And um, so I just want specifically speaking to, um, a, yeah, abuse prevention um, in the church is number one, I would think requiring pastors and staff members to attend um, preve abuse prevention seminars and trainings. There's a lot of programs across the country and I'm not sure like we're in different countries, so I'm not sure how this works and what resources there are in other countries. But in the U.S., there are a lot of organizations that are specific, like this is what they specifically do is that they help train. Um, they do sexual abuse prevention training. So um, there's one in particular that I've actually had personal um, contact with. It's called Ministry Safe, and it's a great organization. And I, I attended like an eight hour training. It was like on a Saturday um, I think that's one simple thing that someone can do. And they went through red flags of perpetrators, you know, what to look out for. They explained that, you know, um, a background check is not enough. Like most, I forget what the statistic is, but most um, perp sexual perpetrators will not actually be convicted until they're like way later in life after they have already abused multiple people. So a background check really doesn't, sh is not a standard of care. It's not enough. So um, I think one simple way that churches can do this is um, invest in trainings, send your staff members, send all your pastors, even volunteers. If your volunteers are super hands-on with kids, um, and I'm specifically speaking to youth and like to children, I'm in the protection of children and all, and all con congregants. But what I'm passionate about is the protection of not exploiting children in the church and that the adults in the church are, are working to protect the children and are aware of what could happen. So I'm um, sending volunteers, pastors, staff members to these training and preventions. And I think it needs to happen more than just once. It needs to be a continuous educational thing. Um, and then number two, so just to keep it very simple, as a survivor of sexual pastoral abuse, these are the two things I think the church could start doing right now to support survivors of sexual abuse, to help prevent abuse, is do the trainings. 
and invite, invite professionals in to do the trainings or send your people to the seminars. And number two, partner with survivors. Invite survivors to share their stories. Talk about the pastoral abuse that is going on. It is not addressed. It is not talked about. And I think these two things can be a gateway and a, a great start to other things that the church can start developing and incorporating into their church. And my biggest thing with, um, yeah, I actually, I think you're going to ask another question and I'll, I'll wait until you ask it to, um, to answer what I was going to say next, but yeah, those are the two biggest things, trainings and partner with survivors. Yeah. So the, the next question was just what do churches need to do to become a safe space for those who have trauma? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I thought about um, this question a lot and I think that the biggest, and just to make it simple, the biggest thing that churches can do right now, today, is stop practicing outside of their scope. Stop practicing outside of their competencies. They are not the legal justice system. So if abuse is brought up, they need to follow the legal mandates per state um, and wherever you're at, follow legal mandates and, and um, report it to the appropriate authorities and let the professionals come in and do the investigation and do their job. So if you're a pastor, you're not an investigator, don't, don't practice out of your scope. And then for mental health care with congregants, with students who are struggling with depression, anxiety, different mental health um, struggles, do not practice out of your scope. You are not a mental health counselor. You are a spiritual counselor and refer, 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 refer. So my biggest thing is admit your competency. Don't practice outside of your competency. Have that clearly established. Um, and one thing, you know, with that is, is for ministers and church staff members to be trauma-informed and do like like they could, there's so many trauma-informed trainings, like they could do um, conferences and seminars, just like the abuse prevention, so that they are familiar with those signs of, of trauma. And so they know, hey, this is out of my scope. And it's okay to admit and say, I don't know. And this is, this is beyond my competency. And I'm going to help you get the help you need. Um, and that, it's as simple as that. It's just admitting that this is beyond my scope of practice and getting, helping people. So I think those are the two basic things churches can do so that people who have trauma, who have experienced specifically religious trauma can feel safe again and knowing that these people are not gonna mishandle me or take advantage or exploit other people and prevent themselves as a, a mental health practitioner or a legal system that they just are not. So um, yeah, those are the, I think the, that's the biggest thing they can do. Yeah, I think those are great recommendations. So thank you very much for all that you've shared today, Maggie May. I really appreciate it. Um, if people are wanting to find you online, if they're wanting to see more of the sort of content that you create, and I can attest that as great content, um, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at, uh, my handle is at Trauma Stronger. And my blog, I share a blog and share part of my story on there. And that's just maggiemayblog.com. But my link is just in my profile. So pretty much just at Trauma Stronger on Instagram. And I would love to connect with anybody. Um, again, I'm not a professional, but I'm just sharing my experience, sharing my story. And hopefully uh, little by little can help make a change in the Christian community um, by sharing my story and help make it a safer place. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll put all of that in the show notes to make it easier for people to find you. Um, but thank you so much again for coming on. 
Yes, thank you so much, William. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. I'm so excited to continue to listen to your podcast. And uh, thanks for giving me my first opportunity to come and talk on a podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Cheers. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Obviously, we covered a lot of difficult conversations, difficult topics about church too, and the abuses of authority within the church. And this week, there has been some news which is very relevant to what we discussed today. So I just want to make a quick comment on it. Many of you will know who Ravi Zacharias is, but for those of you who don't, Ravi Zacharias was the head of an apologetics ministry called Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Now, Ravi was accused in 2017, first of all, of inappropriate texts and emails to someone who he had met through his ministry. And this was denied by Ravi and the organization didn't see the need to investigate further and just said this is not what we would expect the way we would expect Ravi to act so we didn't hear much else from that afterwards it was just a case of take him at his word fast forward last year Ravi passed away and later in the year there were more and more allegations that came out about sexual abuse and sexual misconduct and so Ravi Zacharias International Ministries decided to recruit an investigative firm who looked into these allegations and it was found that these were credible, that there is evidence of the way that Ravi had sexually abused, uh, raped and also inappropriately touched or spiritually abused women as well. The statement that they released says uh, a few different things but it's worth reading if you have the time and if you have the emotional energy to be able to. From all the different sort of evangelical organisations that have had these sort of scandals, I do have to say this as a response which has been good. Um, they are honest, they are open, they have put the full report and investigation available online for you to read. as a difficult read, especially if you were someone who respected or looked up to Ravi Zacharias when you were an evangelical or when you were into apologetics. It is a difficult read. To give an idea of what the language is like in the report and the statement that is available on the website, I'm just going to read a short section of it. It says this, To be victimised by unwanted sexual conduct, advances and behaviour is horrendous, is diametrically opposed to everything we believe about the value and dignity of every single person. We believe not only the women who made their allegations public, but also additional women who had not previously made public allegations against Ravi, but whose identities and stories were uncovered during the investigation. Tragically, witnesses describe encounters including sexting, unwanted touching, spiritual abuse and rape. We are devastated by what the investigation has shown and filled with sorrow for the women who were hurt by this terrible abuse. These women told their stories on conditions of confidentiality and anonymity and we fully intend to respect their wishes by not disclosing their names or any other identifying information. We are deeply, deeply grateful to all of the courageous women and other witnesses who came forward in this investigation. They later go on in the statement to 
repent, really. They say that we are shocked and grieved by Ravi's actions, as Ravi Zacharias was the founder of our ministry and the leader of our staff, community and team. We also feel a deep need for corporate repentance. As followers of Christ who passionately believe that every person bears the image of God, we detest any sin of abuse. We now know, based on the investigation, that Ravi engaged in a series of extensive measures to conceal his behaviour from his family, colleagues and friends. However, we also recognise that in situations of prolonged abuse, there often exists significant structural, policy and cultural problems. It is imperative that where these things exist in our organisation, we take focused steps to ensure they are properly diagnosed and addressed. So some positive things about the statement and about the investigation that's released and whatever sense positive can be used in situations like this is that they don't victim blame. They say that they do believe the victims. They do believe the women who have uh, brought these accusations and uh, statements against Ravi, which is what we want to see in an organization to acknowledge this and to first of all, acknowledge the pain and hurt that these people will have experienced Secondly, they are willing to repent and acknowledge the part that structural issues have played. But obviously, looking back, we see that in 2017, they were far too quick to say that Ravi wasn't in the wrong. And that is something they address and repent of. And to finish off, just two comments from me. One, just regarding the general culture of that allows for this sort of abuse to happen within churches. Oftentimes what you find is that in organisations like this and evangelical organisations, there isn't that much accountability. So when you look at the way that many large churches are set up, non-denominational churches are set up, you find that there is one senior pastor, pretty much always the male, and if there is a female senior pastor, it's usually in title only, not actually in power or influence. And so... This one man has authority. So in the church that I used to attend, the way that it was structured was that there was one man, the senior pastor, who had the authority. He was able to select his two elders that he wanted. I think it might have been three, actually. Three elders in the local area. So he chose the elders that he wanted. And then beyond that, he had what they called external uh, accountability but they were based elsewhere in the world. So we are in Scotland and the church that I attended was in Scotland, but his external accountability was in um, Orange County in America and then also in Australia and then down south in England. So too far away to be of any use in terms of accountability. And these are the sort of situations that allow for abuse to happen. There was definitely spiritual abuse and emotional abuse that happened in the church that I used to attend. And similar things happen in other churches. And from the conversation that we've just heard in today's podcast, we also know that sexual abuse also thrives in environments like this, where there is a lack of accountability and structures set up to allow complete autonomy to power figures, to leadership figures, and they can begin to feel untouchable. We've seen that with people like Carl Lentz recently and many others time and time again within the evangelical church. Secondly, just a comment on the way that I was involved with Ravi Zacharias International Ministry in the past. Just in terms of being a a student of theirs, of their online apologetics course, 
So, and I think it would have been 2017 was when I really began to my journey of deconstruction, of questioning my faith. And I decided that the best thing I could do to try and get answers was to do this apologetics course. I'd been listening to the Ravi Zacharias podcast for a long time at that stage and really enjoyed his work, was finding that it was helping me to keep my faith for a period of time. And so I decided to do their online apologetics course. I took part in this and this was after the allegations of abuse had been made. I was still part of the evangelical church at this stage, hadn't fully deconstructed, um, but was also playing into that system that allows for these sort of abuses to happen, just dismissing it as a disgruntled woman who wanted um, to have their time in the limelight. And that was the perception that I had at that time. And I just want to take this opportunity to repent of the way that I've played into the system into the in the past, the way that I've been involved in allowing for these types of abuses to happen, that even in the church that I was in and ended up being spiritually and emotionally abused myself by the senior pastor, the way that I justified and defended him in the times that others were being um, emotionally and spiritually abused as well. So I just want to take that opportunity to put that out there um, and to have a level of repentance and say that that is definitely not the position that I take now. And in this podcast and on this sort of online platform that we have at The Space Between, we believe women and we want to take every opportunity we can to support and help those who have been victims of abuse, but obviously encourage people to go down appropriate channels to receive counselling and the help they need in the situations as is relevant. Our hope for everyone who has experienced any form of abuse is that they will find healing and wholeness in whatever path they end up following. So to close out this statement and this episode, I just want to end in a prayer. If that is not something that you feel comfortable with, then now is the time for you to head on to your next podcast that's in your up next list. And we will look forward to having you with us again in the next episode next week. But for those of you who are comfortable, then just get into a quiet place and, and find a position in which you can sit comfortably. We come to you, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, God of love and God of justice. We ask you today to bring justice for every victim of abuse, whether that abuse has been carried out by those who profess your name, a family member, or any other person or organisation. We ask that you pour out your love on every person who has suffered at the hands of those who wield their power in harmful and destructive ways. May they know that they are not to blame, they are not at fault. Let healing and wholeness be their portion. May your tender caring hands hold them near. We ask that you bring to account those who have done wrong. May they come to understand and know the pain and suffering that they have caused. We pray that they would come to a place of true repentance and sorrow for what they have done. We ask that you cause your church to wake up to the instances of abuse that they have allowed for and the theologies and beliefs which have propped up systems of abuse. We as your church repent for any part we have played in allowing for this. 
Finally, we ask that you provide us with opportunities to partake in the restoration of all things, that you would allow us to join in the eternal dance of love that you are constantly inviting us to. May we see wrongs made right, may liberation and restoration become a reality. Let us rebuild for the future in more sustainable, loving and liberating ways. Great God of love and justice, may we honour you with our heart's cry.